We're going to open up the First Timothy chapter 2, and as we were talking about the split session and they asked if, uh, who would like to take it, uh, I thought, well, I guess I should probably jump in and volunteer. Uh, one, I've taught on this text uh, in China. Uh, many, one of the things I've been involved with for a number of years was training uh, national pastors in China. So if you want to talk about an issue of women in ministry, that's a place to talk about it, okay? Uh, so as we were training national pastors, one of the things that we did was uh, teach you the pastoral epistles. We did it following up a couple of courses they did on hermeneutics. and hermeneutical. So we were kind of modeling good hermeneutics as we taught through uh, the pastoral epistles, plus dealing with pastoral theology issues, church issues. Uh, so one of them I dealt with is obviously this, uh, this uh, issue in dealing with women's role in the church, men and women's role in the church. And so, again, one of the contexts, because uh, I could often be accused of not actually understanding their shoes, because they live in their culture and how it functions. And uh, so one of the things I also told the Chinese pastors, and I'll tell you this as well, this gets real close to home, because uh, you see a product of even my salvation as an adult and not being grown up in a Christian home, is my mother has later come to faith. She got involved in the United Methodist Church, where she became a lay leader and did a lot of Bible studies with women, and then eventually the, past, the church didn't have a pastor. She basically functioned as that role. Uh, now, for the most part, I didn't have a big issue with it at first because it was just a group of ladies. She was really leading a Bible, ladies' Bible study. But it eventually came to now she actually is referred to in her community as Pastor Judy. That's my mother. So when we deal with this text, I've actually had extensive conversations with her on this passage and actually dealing with this. So this does get real personal for me and really does come home in terms of as we look at this and what does the text say. And if there's one person I would probably want to compromise for, it'd be my mom, but I'm not going to do that, okay? You have to be honest with what the scripture actually says and deal with it. And so I also would just say to all of you in ministry, I think when we come to a text like this, obviously we're flowing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, dealing with the context of public worship. So we are dealing contextually with the issue of public worship. We step into this, and we're going to step into the issues of male and female directives on worship. In fact, I titled it that way, God's Gender Directives. Now, part of titling it that way is also part of the cultural issue that we're dealing with today. We're dealing with a cultural issue where we're having this whole blurring of gender distinctives, and all of this stuff that's in our culture, this is one of those opportunities. You better speak into that issue. You better come straight into the reality we're living in a culture that's celebrating that which actually can never withstand. I mean, it's not going to stand up in the sense that it can never overcome actual cultural, I mean, creation realities. I mean, there was an article just uh, last year, uh, ran in the USA Today, and it was quoting from a, US, uh, a UCLA professor who was saying, he's envisioning a future where coming out isn't relevant uh, I, pl I politically believe there's going to be a future where gender is irrelevant. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I am here to tell you that his view of the future is impossible. It's an impossible reality. It will never come to pass. You can never ignore, in fact, the, the people can look gender confused. They can try to make their appearance not look like a gender, but there are no genderless people in God's created order. There will be no genderless children born into this world. And they may confuse the looks gender-wise, but they're ultimately going to have to figure out who's male and female if they ever want to have a baby. 
they're going to have to figure, you know, so you, you are not going to, no matter how much rhetoric are, they want to put out or accuse others of being hateful, uh, they actually cannot overcome uh, the creation order. And so we need to speak into this issue with clarity that there are actually roles given by gender distinctives to men and women in the context of local church worship without which God will not be glorified. The ministry of the word will not go forward. Lives will not be changed. The gospel will be compromised. And so we need to be clear on this as we we set these issues forward. So I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to focus, uh, is this a men's group? I'm going to focus in on us at the start of this text and dealing with prayer and holiness and and what that that established as far as uh, that distinctive role in the local church worship. Uh, I will then wade into the other issues and and hopefully in a way that is helpful to us to think through it and how we lead in the context of the local church. Uh, But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, I therefore that, that that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And like men are also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So we're going to start with directives for men. So directives in men, and that first directive, and then what you're going to see there is going to be translation as I've translated 1 Timothy. So that's what I've put from the slides forward. It's my own translation uh, of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, in these specific verses. But anyway, worship directives from men. Men are to lead, and they're to lead the way in making prayer a priority. So therefore, obviously, is reaching back, and if we look back in the text, so back up to chapter, um, verse 1 is the exhortation for prayers. This is, I, I don't think it's necessarily first in importance. You can take it that way. I think it's first in terms of as he's addressing the issues of worship. Uh, you can take it first in importance, but this is where he starts in addressing the issue of, 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 of uh, the, the public worship, that prayers intercession should be made for all men. And as he then drives into verses 3 and 4, we are to be praying what for all men? Well, ultimately, we're praying that they would be saved. We are to be praying for all men. We know we're going to pray for those in authority, but we're also praying for people to come to the gospel is clearly part of what we are called on to pray. We're actually praying for God to do what only God can do. Only God can save sinners. I mean, we are called to to lead a congregation, to engage with the gospel into the community which God has sent us to go as we're going and to be seeking to make disciples and see lives change for the glory of God. But we're called to do what we cannot do on our own, which is to constantly remind us of the place of dependency, why the priority of prayer. It must be a priority in the life of the minister, but it also must be a priority in the life of the congregation. That we don't want to be a church that just prays, we want to be a praying church. And what does that look like? What should that look like? How do we actually lead the way so that prayer becomes the priority that God calls it to be? I'll stay off that text for just a moment. But if we're going to make prayer the priority, we have to think through it. That we have to think through what does the local church service look like? Is it just, well, we have an opening prayer, we have a pastoral prayer, 
how do we actually engage congregationally for that we are a praying church that actually is showing our dependency on God? And there's a lot of different ways you can think of it. Spurgeon obviously had a great prayer ministry, people who prayed during and before the services. I, uh, every church that I've had the privilege of pastoring, we would have a pre-service prayer meeting. You want to talk about the lowest attended meeting? It's not just the Wednesday night prayer meeting, but it's going to be the pre-service prayer meeting which, I mean, honestly, is always just a window into this reality that we struggle to communicate to our people how absolutely dependent we are on prayer and for God to actually make our services meaningful. The reality is, is our people really do tend to think that if we have an organized service with all of these programs and a beautiful music and a talented pastor who can preach, good things are going to happen. Well, God's going to work because God is God. God's word goes forward, it never goes forward in vain, and so God's going to work, but are we desperate to see God change our lives? Do we even enter God's presence with that reality? I mean, I appreciate those who use social media to remind us to pray before we go. Have you prayed for your services? Have you prayed for church service? Have you prayed for your pastor? Do you pray for your missionaries? And those reminders are good. Uh, it used to be, culturally, there was actually a time when things shut down early on Saturday night. Why? Because people were getting ready for church. We don't much do that anymore. In fact, one author suggests the, le- the thing that is least prayed for is the local church. Now, in stating that, he's not saying that uh, we don't pray for people, and we actually know that people make up the church. So in one sense, you could say that's a false nomer. We do pray for people, so we're praying for the church. But his point was we don't actually pray for the services that we would actually come with receptive hearts expecting God to show up and speak and lives to be changed. We seldom come into the presence of God actually saying, God, I need you to change me. And so I have come praying for God to do a work in my life, not just someone else. I think the church is really good at sharpening elbows. You know, we pre-service, sharpen the elbow, get it in there and sharpen it up so that when we're done, here are the message, we've thought about three people who really needed to hear it. And we might even be brave enough to go tell them, wasn't that a great message? You needed it. But we're not real good about actually coming with a heart saying, Lord, I need to hear from you. And I come as one dependent because I actually can't transform my own life. Therefore, I need to hear from you. And I need your spirit to have free course in my life. And this is what men are called to do, to lead the way as men of prayer to make sure prayer has a priority in the local church. Uh, Just this week, God was really kind. Part of my own uh, reading and meditation was from Psalm 84, and I didn't put that text on here, but Psalm 84 reads this way, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift my soul. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and unite my heart to fear your name. It's an incredible text with so many lessons on prayer for us uh, that it reminds me the true gladness of heart only comes from the Lord. It's not going to come from anywhere else, which also should mean, I, I mean, I pastored for 30 years, and I can just tell you that after every Sunday, you come to Monday, and you know Sunday's coming. And it is always that Sunday's coming reality. You live in the middle of it. You live in the preparation of it. You live in the hope of it. And hopefully, you live in the delight of it. That we actually get to stand before God's people, open his word, and proclaim him every week. It's an incredible
privilege. And it's such an honor to gather with God's people knowing his promised presence. But do we actually gather that way? Do we come with that joy? Do we come with that anticipation? Have we actually prayed that way? And as you look at this text, it's just remind, or you've heard the text, I don't have it up here, but I mean, we, we, we are, are sold, we lift up, we give ear, and we cry out for grace, which is that constant reminder of humble dependency. I can't earn grace. I can't merit grace. I'm not going to get grace because I'm in the ministry. I'm not going to give grace because I prepared to preach. I'm not going to give grace because I've been called to ministry like it's earned or merited. I come to a throne filled with grace. And if I'm not found there at the throne filled with grace asking God to grant greater grace, then I'm actually reflecting my own self-sufficiency, that I think I'm sufficient for the task. And so we're called on to be a people dependent on grace. They then cry out, Lord, teach us. Teach us your way. And then the final one is just this. I mean, he warns about our actually praise that God would unite his heart to fear his name. And I just put it this way. If I don't learn to fear God's displeasure, then soon sinful things will be my treasure. If I don't learn to fear God's displeasure, soon sinful things will be my treasure. And so we come as a dependent people, dependent on it needs to be led uh, by the men of the church, by the men in the congregation. That's what God's calling on. Uh, There it goes. And then you see in this, this, so we are to lead in every place to pray, and then lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. And so as we look up lifting up holy hands, it's not, again, so much primarily a posture issue. Uh, It's not talking specifically just necessarily your hands and the holy hands. It's just a part of then referring to the character of the individual. If the hands are holy, the individual is holy. And it is is speaking about the the necessary of purification. I mean, the Old Testament priest had a, a whole ritual they went through before they ever entered the presence of God. I'm thankful I have their New Testament dress standard, aren't you? You know, I don't have the vestments, the breastplate. I don't have the whole ritual to go through and the washings and all those things I have to do before I enter the pulpit to preach God's word. I don't have all of that on me. But they were being reminded constantly of their own sinfulness. They're being reminded of the necessity of cleansing. They're being reminded of the need of God's presence with them. All of that was meant to communicate that. And so he's saying as men to lead in the local congregation, we have to be men dependent on prayer, show that forth in our own individual example, lead forth into a corporate worship that actually shows dependency on prayer and being led by people who are actually reflective of holiness, whose lives reflect the very character of God. And so to lift up holy hands is to be holy in character. And we can see that in a number of texts. The psalmist speaks this way of God having his holy arm. Well, obviously, God doesn't have an arm. He's pure spirit. He's simply communicating to us the holiness of God, and God's character pervades all that he does, and so his power and action as it would be in this text. But as we look at this, part of our responsibility is how we proclaim holiness and the beauty thereof. I mean, so in conversation, so what are the things that then take place being led by the men of the church? Are we talking more about the games or maybe it's hunting season coming up? Some of you deer hunters out here probably scouting, already got everything set and it's going to be the big trophy buck, everything. We talk, and again, I, I like hunting. 
I enjoy hunting stories. I enjoy uh, rooting for sporting teams that I like and against the ones I don't. And I'm not going to get into those issues because you might not like me if I told you who I like. And anyway, but I mean, but those are, but they're trivial. They're just trivial things that consume so much of our attention. How much time do we actually talk about holiness? How much do we give the representation that holiness is beautiful? We've, for far too long, had plenty of, uh, of, of, of more or less emphasis could be, I mean, holiness is obviously a separation, a separation from all that is morally impure. God is holy. Uh, one author, Sinclair Ferguson, in a book called Devoted to God, uh, dedicated uh, part of the one he was writing about is that holiness existed in God before there was sin. And we tend to run at holiness as just being separate from sin, separate from sin. Well, God was holy before there was sin. And so part of holiness is a devotion to all that is right, to all that is truly beautiful, which isn't defined by my opinion. It's actually defined by the God of Scripture. And so as my life, a demonstration of a glorying in the holy character of God reflected in personal life with devotion to what is right. And do I talk about those things? I mean, are we leading the way in, in, in talking about your own devotional life? Is that the conversation after church? What God has been teaching you is your prayer life and what you've been praying for and how God is working in your family in answer to prayer. Is that a topic we talk about? Are we talking about the people in the community who were burdened to see saved and what we're, how we're praying and how we're laboring to reach them? Are we talking about those things? Or do we hear the message, soon leave the message, and go on to what really is important to us? What do our conversations after church say about our priorities? God is saying the church needs to be led by holy men, by men who actually make the worship of God in the beauty of holiness attractive. And that's the call as he's talking about men with holy, uh, holy men I did a little research. This is one of those iconic pictures on, called Praying Hands. Um, and one of those uh, I did just was curious. So Albrecht Durer was one of 18 children. He was the, one, I mean the, the, uh, the artist who was commissioned to draw this back in 1508. But the story behind it is that Albrecht and his brother Albert had made a pact that one would go to art school while the other uh, would work in the mines and pay for the one to go. So Albrecht was the one who got to go. His brother Albert worked in the mines. After four years of working in the mines to pay for his older, his, his older brother Albert to be in school, Albert's hands could no longer hold anything to do art. Just the work in the mines had so abused his hands, and it is said that Albrecht drew his brother's hands as they roughed and withered and all of that, he drew his brother's hands, which became known as praying hands, but it's emblematic of one brother's sacrifice for another, but also emblematic of this reality of one brother was fully dependent on the other. And so there's a tremendous story behind that in the, in the dependency of one upon another, which obviously ties back into the whole issue of prayer. But I just thought it was a fascinating story of one brother's sacrifice in love for another, and then the other brother's commend, uh, really using his brother's hands uh, to symbolize the dependency that we have on God himself. Even in the most difficult of circumstances you could face, his brother gladly gave himself to working in the mines 
to see his other brother be able to go forward in school. So we look at this next point that would just be men are to lead the way in making submission honorable. And that, where do you get that? Well, when he talks about lifting up holy hands without angering and disputing, you're getting into this, uh, the issue of, again, contextually dealing with the fact false teachers were moving in. They were actually trying to assert themselves with apostolic authority. They were creating angry disputes when the church, I mean, you know, one of the reasons we get angry is we don't get our own way. And we all have to examine if what, what, what do we get upset about if we don't get our way. And if you're going to lead, at times you're leading, and part of the trap of leadership is that leaders are supposed to lead the way, but sometimes in leading the way, I could just want my own way. And so here's what he's saying. Holy men do not lead with anger and dispute. If it's not going your way, it's not how you lead with anger and dispute. You're not fighting for your own way. It is not a platform for your own self-advancement as the basic ministry is not that. So leadership is not a platform for you to drive forward your own agenda. It is actually us coming together, independent prayer, asking God to work, and then watching out for those who actually want to move ahead of authority. I mean, we live in a culture that, that, that actually has greatly challenged every form of authority that exists in culture. We want to cancel everybody. You know, we're going to cancel the police. We're going to cut this force. Any, any force speaking authoritatively or with moral courage or having the right of arrest, however you want to look at it, we've been dismissing authority after authority after authority. We live in a culture that doesn't know much about true submission. Really doesn't. And then you even got the raw, I mean, you can go back in American culture and get to the raw Americana male egoistic machismo, that we're all going to be that, and that's our idea of authority, which is still false. So what does God-honoring submission look like? That's what you're supposed to demonstrate. So how you lead your family in response to biblical authority is a big deal in God's church how your family actually responds to the leadership of the local church and they're, they're leading uh, in worship and leading your family. I mean, the book of Hebrews is pretty clear. Obey those who rule over. Be in submissive. Be submissive, for they watch for, out for your souls. And those who do it must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not grief. Would to God that every testimony of a pastor was he was leading a flock that let him do so with joy not grief. You know, the average numbers are not good in terms of pastoral ministry tenure. Why? Because we don't know how to live in submission to authority. And the grief of leading people often leads men to quit. Now, I'm not saying they came to the right conclusion, but I am telling you it is difficult to lead sheep that don't want to follow. So it takes godly men to set the example of submission to authority for the sake of the church, but for the sake of their family. If your children do not learn to live in submission to your authority in your home, I promise they won't live in submission to authority and culture. And the church is, a, is, is reflective of how much struggle we have to live under authority today. We see that in American culture and American church in a big way. We don't have a lot of time. I kind of planned it that way, but uh, <laughs> not really. I wanted to address us as men and, and challenge us in those areas, but in terms of walking through, I do think it's important to lead in this conversation as well. 
what is God saying to women? I think women are to beautify worship. And it's not just their good looks that beautify worship. It is actually an issue of deportment, uh, that it is the proper adornment. And so this modesty and decency deals with the, actually deals with the deportment of their own heart. It is a modest deportment. So it is their own submissive leadership that is a, a part of beauty. And there is uh, the extension, obviously, in these issues of clothing and style. And, you know, I could spend a lot of time here, but what I think we, we need to walk away from is to be able to talk into these issues appropriately. Obviously, institutionally, every institution is going to have levels of standards on dress. They should, just for, for consistency's sake, for clear communication's sake. You're, you should have that at some level in the local church regarding public worship. They're going to be in institutions. But what the principle that God is saying, it deals with the modesty, not only in display, but in attitude. The decency really gets more in the public display. The modesty really speaks of the heart. And then he gives some examples in their culture that was out of line. So you had people with wealth showing off their wealth and showing it off by how they did their hair and all the jewelry and all the, the garb. So are, is jewelry and braided hair bad? Is expensive clothing bad? Well, he's not saying that. He's saying what was being communicated in the culture was a look at me. Now, we just we live in that culture, guys. We live in a culture that everything stylistically is about how it draws attention to you. We're sending messages constantly with how we dress. You live in a culture bombarded with that kind of message. So how you dress is communicating ultimately whose child you are. That is what it's supposed to communicate. That who you dress for is not the approval of men. It is not to show off what you have. It is not to draw attention to self. It is fundamentally display your one under authority, the authority of the living God, who displays a modest deportment towards God in what you wear and a decency that's appropriate for others to see without being drawn into you. And that applies to men and women. It applies in every aspect. We have to, to wrestle through and make those applications so we can actually come in the place. that God actually does care how you dress. I mean, I, I always love the church that says, come as you are. You know, my response is that, how do I come any other way? I come as I are because I can't help it. I are the way I am. I'm going to come that way. And what they mean by that is just come dressed however you want. And that's just ridiculous. You are to come in such a way you demonstrate submission to the God of heaven and that you're his child and you're not a child of the culture around you. And if everything just communicates I'm a child of the culture around you, then why should God of heaven believe you came to worship him? You enter his presence. And so we need to be concerned with what we're communicating and how we dress. And how we conduct ourselves as we come in. If church all about me, then I'm going to come in demanding to be served. Is church about the glory of God? Then I'm coming in looking to serve. How I even enter church is communicating the deportment of my soul. And so do I come as a worshiper or do I come one demanding worship services? It's a huge difference. And so we, the women beautify the service or beautify through uh, proper service. So it's appropriate service, good deeds. We could go on. I probably just need to jump to, so we're, we're running out of time, so I'll just jump to the ones you probably want me to, to talk about a little bit. So 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I see Paul's parallel in 1 Corinthians 
uh, 14, let women keep silent in church, we're not permitted to speak. Now, I'll just cut the chase. I mean, you could go through a lot of different issues. But what's going on in the first century is there's still the gift of prophecy. So people could stand up and say, I have a word of prophecy for the congregation. It was then called to be judged. It was to be measured against what they know. Women in the church were not to do that. That was considered a pastoral or a leadership issue. So they were called to silence over the judgment of that or a discernment of that message being that which was from God. And that was their silence. Because are women actually never supposed to speak in church? Well, obviously we have in chapel ladies praying all the time. Your church may or may not have done that. But is that an issue? Absolutely not. Because prayer is not leading in worship. Prayer is the type of a testimony given. And so it's perfectly appropriate. In fact, there's, there's instruction given in Corinthians about women giving a word of prophecy even. So they had a prophetic word. That would be a miraculous gift. But so what, what they were called to do is, is not exercise authority over the word in judgment of the word or, as he will go on to say, that they are not to permit to teach, have authority. So this would be primarily an, in that pastoral teaching office. So oftentimes in China, they would ask me, so what do we do? We've got all these ladies, and they're calling them pastors, and they're really leading groups Bible studies that really doesn't function like a church. I said, well, first of all, I think you should stop calling them pastors. And is it okay for the lady who knows the most of the Bible to lead a Bible study? Absolutely. Well, there's men in there. I don't care. It's not a local church worship service. She can actually lead that Bible study. Now, rightly done, if they're going to assemble then and have somebody teach a lesson to the, the, the group, then I think she should take the most qualified man, teach him, and have him teach the group, which kind of is the Priscilla Aquila thing. Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, had to take Apollos to the side and rightly instruct him. So it doesn't say that the, the wife didn't participate in that, okay? It's a husband and wife correcting uh, Apollos, and he's actually then stepping forward. So I think there's, there's plenty of room for women to be involved in leading in terms of not corporate worship, but they can lead Bible studies. They obviously can lead ladies' Bible studies, ladies' groups. You know, Grandma and, and, and Mom taught Timothy. Obviously, we have plenty of warrant. We've got older women teaching younger women. There's all kinds of ministry for ladies. And ladies can, under their husband's authority, instruct men, just not in a public worship service. And so they can't be pastors. They can't. Biblically out of order to take that position. Absolutely biblically out of order. And out of order for a church is suggested. I know that just this is where we, and I could give you all the different arguments that are offered and in support of it and the different things that people have said to try and get around the text. Uh, but we would be here all day if I did that, so I won't. But we need to, I, I just will end with, and, and, and you know, here's, important because this fundamentally, because there are those who just simply want to say, well, that was Paul's day, or it's a present only applied to Paul's time. It was Paul's opinion. Well, Paul's writing inspiration. That means he's given us the very words of God. You know, one of the things unique about the writers of scripture is when they gave their opinion under inspiration, they gave you the very words of God. I can give you my opinion about something, and I have, and as a pastor will, at times give the church my opinion about an application. And I will say, this is not the word of God, because my opinion doesn't equate that way. But when you're reading scripture and Paul says, I am saying this, he's not saying my opinion. He's still writing the very words of God. And so he is setting forth the words of God, and he's setting forth them, and he's rooting it in a creation argument, not in a cultural argument. It is a creation with a fall, and he illustrates what happens when God's order gets usurped. Chaos takes place. 
And that will happen in the local church. That will happen in the family. It will happen in any place where we actually usurp the God-given roles and responsibilities that have been given. So if we usurp, we usurp them, then it is Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's an order of priority, and Adam was not the one deceived, but Adam's the one who sinned, willfully rebelled. Eve was deceived. And we could talk a lot more about that, but I thought the last thing that you probably would like me to comment on, and I'll just end with it, I think. Yeah, so what is this childbearing? So there's a lot of different things that have been said throughout time, uh, different positions said. I think the most consistent position, and I'll just give you, is that there's a, def- a definite article there with the childbearing. I think when he, Paul says, I'll be saved, and he uses the word sozo there, he never uses a physical deliverance. And I think contextually, what we have to remember, we're talking about, but the women that he's talking about are believing for women. So he's talking about what the woman's role is in public worship. And so the woman he's saying will be saved, this is a soteriological salvation that is through a specific childbirth, the childbirth, which is of Christ. Because he's back in Genesis. He took us right back to Genesis. So this is a creation issue. So you come from creation of fall, the promise of the one who would deliver through childbirth is ultimately fulfilled in a specific childbirth, Christ. That's why he goes on to say, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, there's just a perseverance text. So it is salvation through the Messiah. And I think that's what the childbirth's talking about. So that's the other technical issue in there. Uh, you can back check me, tell me I'm wrong later. It's okay. But I just thought I would get at least try to get that far to give you an idea of where uh, I believe that text lands. Uh, but where we need to land as we land this plane is just, man, God has called us to lead. You can't escape that call. You live in a culture that tells you leadership is a false male bravado and you need to get rid of it. You need to eject the culture's thoughts of leadership. God's called you to step up in the context of the local church and be men. And it's high time that men teach young boys to be men, to lead. To lead by being a people dependent on God, a man of prayer, a man of the word, a man committed to holiness. And if we are those kind of men, then we'll help raise a generation of men who can lead God's church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness. Thank you for your word and its power, its authority. And pray, Lord, as we wrestle with these texts, as we wrestle through the applications, we think in thoughts and ways that actually honor you, that advance your glory in the context of local church, so the gospel will not be hindered by the lives that we live. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.